I will invite you to uh, turn in your Bible, if you brought one with you, or if you want to grab one from under the chair in front of you, uh, to uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80, if you are using the uh, chair Bible, I guess we'll call it. It's, uh, I believe, on page 856. And uh, as you are turning there, uh, 67, is it 57 or 60? Yes, yeah, 57. I don't know what it is. It's, it's in there somewhere. Um, page 856. But as you know, uh, today is the third Sunday of Advent, and I am required by law to tell you that several times during the service, of course. Uh, if you have an Advent wreath at home, or you've seen one that has the pink candle with the purple candles, today is Pink Candle Day. Uh, the reason for that is because it's, uh, the, the theme is joy, according to that tradition. Uh, there are sort of, if you think about liturgical churches, very high church uh, formats, uh, Advent is traditionally a somber season, a uh, time for penitence, uh, but the third Sunday is a break. It's a time for joy. Actually, if you go back to the Middle Ages, the uh, four themes of Advent uh, were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So that third Sunday, you can see how it has a little bit lighter, uh, more celebratory mood. I mean, can you, I don't think they did Advent wreaths for that. Can you imagine, you know, today we light the hell candle. Uh, as we gaze at its flames, we ponder the eternal conscious torment of, you know, we, this. so um, we're focusing on, on the, the joyful themes. But if I were to ask you, why is Christmas a time for joy? I suspect that many of you would say something about salvation, right? Rightly so. Uh, but what do we mean by salvation? It's something that we talk about a lot in churches, and, and maybe we easily take it for granted. Uh, we talk about saving souls, talk about getting saved or being saved, praying for someone's salvation. Uh, we almost use it as a synonym for uh, conversion or becoming a Christian, or going to heaven when you die. Well, today's sermon text gives us some helpful reminders of just what salvation means and why it is so worth celebrating. Uh, so again, Luke in chapter 1, it looks like here it is 57 through 80. Let me go ahead and read that for us now. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet by the way, a writing tablet is not like an iPad. For those of you uh, who are, are younger, it's a wooden piece of wood covered with wax that he could write on because he was uh, unable to speak. We'll get there. I'll explain that later. But uh, he wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So last week, uh, we looked at the passage right before this, which is Mary's song, uh, sometimes called the Magnificat, and you might notice this week that the passage is similar to Mary's song. Especially if you're using the Pew Bible, you can almost see it visually in the two columns there. Both passages, Luke gives us a short sort of narrative before recording the song or the prophecy itself. In this case, the setting for Zechariah's song, a prophecy, which is called the Benedictus, uh, the setting is the birth of his son, John. That's the child that he's talking about. Uh, and his son, uh, as, as we know, will be John the Baptist when he grows up and starts baptizing people. Just a little backstory, so we're all on the same page. Luke actually started his, his gospel after sort of an in introduction uh, with the story of Zechariah. An angel had come down and told Zechariah that he would have a son, and that this son would prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And Zechariah uh, didn't believe this was possible, uh, since he and his wife were both too old, he believed, to have a child. So he was rendered unable to speak until the angel's words would be fulfilled. Uh, un unable to speak as, as a sign, as a discipline. And in today's text, verse 62 suggests that uh, this inability to speak also included the inability to hear as well, because uh, the people who want to know uh, what he wants the son to be called uh, are making motions to him, and why would they make motions to him if they could just talk to him, right, if he could hear? So fast forward to today's text, and we see the birth of the promised child, John. Zechariah's does speech, it doesn't return as soon as the child is born. It's not until he agrees to name the child John, as God had said, as commanded him to do. The neighbors wanted to call him Zechariah uh, because it was proper to name a child after a, a father or other relative. It's simply the way it's done. Elizabeth wants to call him John, and she's not related to anybody named John. It's just nonsense to them. So Zechariah has a choice, right? He can side with the neighbors in tradition or with God and his wife. Uh, that should be a no-brainer for any married man right? man, right? If both God and your wife want you to do something, uh, you should probably pay attention to that, right? Uh, it just doesn't get any clearer. Um, but this isn't about keeping his wife happy. This is Zechariah's expression of, of faith. 
he now believes what God had spoken to him through the angel. So God's discipline has lovingly led him from unbelief into belief, into faith in what he had spoken. And so now, filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah prophesies uh, to the one who had doubted God's word, God graciously gave the gift of speaking his word, which is also why I'm here talking to you now. So a key theme in Zechariah's song, as I said, is salvation. Uh, His big point seems to be that God has come, or is about to come, and save his people. So if you like a sermon to have a main point, and who doesn't want a sermon to at least have a point, right? Uh, Today's main point is that God saves his people. But I want to dig into three questions about God's salvation that Zechariah gives us some insight into. According to this word of the Holy Spirit through Zechariah, what does God save us from? What does God save us for? And why does God save us? We could also add, how does God save us, which is an important question, but it's so important that I'll probably end up talking about it the whole time. It's more of a lens for looking at everything else. So keep that question in the back of your mind as well. Uh, And you might wonder why I keep saying us. Uh, why 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 am I claiming that Zechariah's song says something about God's salvation for us? Isn't he talking about his people? Isn't he talking about Israel? Well, it's helpful to remember that Zechariah, in a sense, is still in the Old Testament. Now, I know we're reading about him in the New Testament, but Jesus hasn't died and risen yet. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. Uh, Zechariah is still under the Old Covenant, and so, in a sense, this is an Old Testament prophecy that we're hearing from him. Uh, Zechariah signals that all the Old Testament prophecies are about to be fulfilled. He actually draws on a lot of Old Testament themes here. Uh, But we're not actually at that point of fulfillment yet, and there are some unexpected ways uh, that Jesus fulfills prophecy that haven't quite become clear yet. One is that the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel ends up bringing God's salvation to all who believe, Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, This was actually a part of uh, the promise to Abraham that Zechariah does mention, that through Abraham's and and his descendants, all families of the earth would be blessed. Uh, But another unexpected way that Jesus fulfills these promises is that the salvation is not accomplished all at once. Uh, Jesus came and died for sins and and rose again, but then he left. He ascended to heaven and left the church to make disciples and wait for his second coming. Uh, You may have heard someone talk about inaugurated eschatology, the already not yet. This is the idea that in one sense... Uh, Salvation has already been accomplished in Christ, uh, but in another sense, it's not yet fulfilled. Uh, We are saved, uh, but we are also those who are being saved, and the last day we will be saved. Uh, Salvation, uh, the New Testament says, I believe this is 1 Peter coming to my mind, that the salvation is ready to be revealed in the last day. Uh, So it is a present reality and a future hope as we Uh, spoke of in the creed. We look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. We see a good example of this idea of already not yet in uh, the answer to the first question, what does God save us from? If I just asked you that question out of the blue, what does God save us from? Uh, What would you probably say? Uh, you, You might say, 
sins, right? That's probably the first thing that, that comes to mind, and, and rightly so. And Zechariah does include that, right? Uh, he says in verse 77, uh, talking about his son John's ministry, that John will give people knowledge of salvation. John doesn't actually save them. He gives them knowledge of the salvation. And that salvation is found in forgiveness of their sins. But before that, there's another concept that he links to salvation. Uh, back in verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. What's that about? Uh, you could try to force those two verses to kind of fit together uh, by saying, well, the, the enemy in question is sin. Uh, the enemies are uh, sin and, and death and Satan, and certainly those are powerful enemies, and God will deliver us from them all. But Zechariah and his hearers almost certainly would have thought about their nation's political and religious enemies. Uh, remember that at this point, uh, they have been... Uh, conquered and occupied and oppressed by foreign empires for centuries, yeah, from Babylon to the Seleucids and the Romans and that sort of thing, they would have thought about flesh and blood human beings who had done them great harm. Now, the idea of being saved from people uh, may not resonate us with us when, when we think about salvation, right? Uh, for a few reasons. For one thing, uh, the Bible says our battle isn't against flesh and blood, right? Jesus said to love your enemies. We're also not gen generally uh, persecuted in this country, at least not in a, a violent way. Uh, I know there are lawsuits and things, uh, but in many parts of the country, you, you can put the little fish sign on your, your business and do just fine, maybe even do better because of it. There are parts of the world where you, your business would be burned to the ground. I imagine that the idea of being saved from your enemies and the hand of those who hate you means a little bit more to Christians who live in those places, right? I think of becoming a Christian in a part of the world controlled by radical Islam. You just made a lot of enemies by being baptized. And that's exactly the kind of thing Jesus predicted would happen. After his resurrection, Jesus told his followers that they would be hated by all for his name's sake. Uh, Luke 21, 17. It's interesting. Right before Jesus said that uh, they would be hated by all, he said uh, some of them would be put to death. And right after that, he says not a hair on their heads would perish. Uh, figure that one out. You might die, but not a hair on your head will be lost, unless you live long enough to go bald, presumably. But getting back to the already not yet, that concept helps us to understand how God does save us from our enemies and that salvation, that salvation is, is secure, uh, is guaranteed, and yet it's a future deliverance, right? In the meanwhile, don't be surprised uh, if you actually have more enemies to be delivered from. And just to tie this theme together a little bit, we could expand what, what I'm saying here uh, beyond uh, salvation from enemies and salvation from sin. Say, in, in the big picture, when all is said and done, God doesn't just save souls. God saves people, whole people, body and soul. Uh, Jesus died to wash away our sins. And that is true now. If you trust him, you are justified, and his righteousness is yours. You're reconciled to God, and it is finished, he said. But that doesn't just mean that your soul flies away and goes to heaven when you die. It means your body will be raised 
When Jesus returns, Jesus lives in social eye. It means that he will wipe away every tear. He'll make all wrong things right. Even when it comes to salvation from sin, we, we experience the forgiveness now, but we still keep sinning, right? Uh, we keep going on being sinned against as well. What the cross has done is to purchase our full salvation, present and future. You're delivered from the guilt of sin, even though you still sin, but one day you will outlive the presence of sin in your life, and that's good news. And the church, the persecuted church, will outlive persecution. Uh, like the hymn, the church is one foundation, and the, the great church triumphant will be the church at rest one day. And you will outlive your suffering as well, whatever it is, whatever pain, anxiety, depression, diabetes, cancer, trauma, whatever it is that you are living with today, you will outlive it in the resurrection of the body. And that's good to know. On a practical level, uh, this helps us to balance the church's mission here and now. We're commanded by Jesus to make disciples near the end of Luke. The message that Jesus tells his followers to preach is forgiveness of sins to all nations. That's the, the beating heart of who we are. That means that on the one hand, we don't get caught up in any kind of uh, prosperity gospel or any kind of teaching that attempts total deliverance from suffering now. And we, we certainly don't replace preaching the forgiveness of sins, preaching Christ crucified with uh, anything that is just merely about trying to make the world a better place now. But it also means we don't get caught up in any kind of Gnostic view that sees current uh, suffering or disaster or injustice as completely irrelevant distractions from the gospel. You know, God called us to love our neighbors, uh, not just their souls. Certainly that should be at the top of the list. But God cares about whole people now, and so should we. We keep Christ crucified at the center of our message because that's what God has called us to do here and now. And that doesn't mean we can't talk or care about anything else. Well, perhaps this leads us to a second question um, in a roundabout way. What does God save us for? What, what does God save us for? What is the life of, of us being saved, even here and now, meant to be like? We could point out a few things Zechariah says, but what I want to focus on is service. In verses 74 and 75, he says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Fearless, holy, righteous service before God all our days. There is a serious already not yet dimension to this, isn't there? You know, we still know fear. Our, our service still falls short of the holy and righteous standards of God. All our days, uh, maybe I serve God most days, for some days. We won't know what this is perfectly like, what, what this is ac actually like until the, the new heavens and the new earth come. And that's partly why serving God uh, in holiness and righteousness may not sound super exciting to you. Uh, you've never known the joy of perfect service to God. Perhaps there have been moments when you saw God work through you, when you were able to see how your, your service made a difference in someone's life, whether in a moment or over time, uh, whether it's somebody that uh, you, you cared for or spoke a kind word 
to or somehow that, that or led to Christ, right? There, there are moments of that kind of joy. And if you've experienced that sense, take that and intensify it. Remove, it from, remove from it any temptation to, to pride or self-satisfaction. Uh, simple joy in seeing God work. Intensify that. Spread that out through eternity. Um, I don't know if that would be bearable. See, we live in a culture that values individual freedom above all else. And maybe we can blame the Enlightenment for that, but I don't want to just scapegoat some old dead philosophers for things. Uh, They had some good ideas anyway. In the civil sphere, uh, individual freedom is a good thing, right? I enjoy having these freedoms, not just so I can do whatever I want and be my own dog, as the commercial used to say, but I enjoy freedom so that I can serve God without fear. Right? That's, that's the goal, for me anyway, uh, for us as Christians, I hope. That's a different motivation than wanting freedom just so you can do whatever you want. Um, uh, serve your appetites and desires without fear. Serve yourself. By the way, uh, when you try to serve yourself, you inevitably will end up serving some idol anyway. Uh, money, pleasure, achievement, entertainment, those become your master, and they let you down every time. They wear you down. They break you down. You serve something that promises to give you joy and glory and satisfaction, but it's going to disappoint. you got to serve somebody, someone once said, and we were created to serve. We worship instinctively. To, to exist as a human being is to be in the service of something or someone outside yourself. And you will not know satisfaction until you know fearless, holy, and righteous service toward God. I would go as far as to say that this is what it means to be made in the image of God. So the irony is that by rejecting God and and turning to idols and and trying to to find who you are, who you're supposed to be on, on the inside, you become like those idols that you've turned to and you end up made in their image and less than you were supposed to be. But when you serve the true and living God, you shine forth the image of God as he intended. You become who you were designed to be, meant to be, destined to be. By the way, this does line up well, I think, with what Zechariah is saying. Uh, To serve God without the fear of enemies would have meant, in his mind, to get back to following the law of Moses without interference, which meant to be the holy nation that God had called them to be, ruled by the Lord God himself, not by some Roman governor. That sentiment um, was certainly fulfilled in an unexpected way. Let's just say it doesn't go well for the Jews after they reject Jesus. But there is a fulfillment now. It's not only a future hope. Jesus' death and resurrection has freed us from the fear of judgment, fear of, of ultimate death, Now we need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ has come to save. And in Christ, we are counted righteous and holy even now. Paul says that our service is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God delights in your imperfect, sin-tainted service now as if it were the perfect, obedient service of his own son. Why would you want to serve anything or anyone else? Your best efforts are never going to be good enough for the idols you serve. And even if you achieve some level of success, they're always going to demand more of you. 
God already loved you enough to send his son for you. And through his son, God, God already forgives your sins completely and delights in your service completely. So why would you want to serve anyone else? The more we understand all of this, the more we find ourselves asking the final question for today, which is, why does God do this? Why does God save us? Why would he supply so great a salvation for so sinful a people like us who rejected him? Zechariah gives two answers, which if you've read through it, you can probably um, guess pretty easily. The first is faithfulness. He says it over and over again. He mentions the house of his servant David. God had made a covenant with David. Uh, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God is sticking to the word he spoke, the promise he made, the oath he swore, the covenant that he remembers. It's remembering his covenants with Abraham, with Israel, with David, the words spoken by the prophets, possibly going all the way back to Moses. This is a big deal for Zechariah, and it's a big deal for the passage. God is faithful to his word. The salvation that is coming in Christ is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament story. God's dealing with Israel in history from the moment he first called their ancestor Abraham to leave his home. It's all been leading up to this moment. Jesus Christ, the Lord of history, would be born just a few months. This is an awe-inspiring, glorious point that doesn't answer our question. I mean, I guess it does in a sense. God saves us because he said he would, but why did God say he would save us in the first place? Why did he make those promises? So the other piece of the puzzle that Zechariah mentions is mercy. He says that mercy is what God's promised, but notice what he says later on. He starts off talking about his son John. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That sentence would be a little tough to diagram, wouldn't it? But to simplify it, in verse 78, the tender mercy of God is the reason for God's work tender mercy. That's who God is. That's why God saves us. At least that's one piece of the puzzle. We could surely throw a few others out there from other parts of the Bible. We could talk about God working salvation for his own glory. That's true. It's even implied in the whole big picture of Zechariah's song. Zechariah is glorifying God for his salvation. The reason this brings glory to God, though, is because it reveals who God is, his character, and his heart. We see God revealed and we respond in praise and glorifying him. I can't help but glorify God for his tender mercy. Tender mercy is an English translation that reflects a a kind of redundancy in Zechariah's song. Zechariah sort of uses two different words for mercy. Uh, One, if you... uh, care about knowing the the Greek words is elios, which is sort of a run-of-the-mill word for mercy that we often encounter. The other is splachna, something like that. 
pronunciation is probably off, but uh, we talked about this same word actually in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, it refers to guts or bowels or lower internal organs, intestines, something like that. Uh, but it's a metaphor for a feeling of compassion. Uh, I guess the ancients viewed that region of the, the body as the seat of where compassion comes from. Now, God doesn't have a body, right? So outside of the incarnation, of course, right? Uh, but it's interesting that in helping us to understand his, his heart in salvation, uh, he used a, a bodily metaphor, much like heart, which I just used. Luke's readers would understand this word to mean the, the inward part of someone that responds to the suffering of someone else. And God doesn't have a, a, an inward part or an outside part either. But what the metaphor tells us is that this tender mercy is, is part of the nature and character of God. It's who he is. So God saves us for his glory, yes, and amen, and glory to his name. But it's not that God is up there saying, man, I really just hate these people, but if I save them, it'll bring me a lot of glory, so I guess I'll go ahead and, and decide to save them. No, God sees the mess that we've gotten into, even though it's, it's our own fault sometimes, and he has compassion on us, even when we fully deserve the mess, and certainly when we don't, even though the mess came from Adam's rejection of God, because God is merciful and gracious. That's what Christmas shows us. Christ was born to give us the mercy of God, to show his mercy. God saves because of who he is. It's not just something he does for some other purpose. He genuinely, deeply cares about his people, the suffering that they've endured, whether it's their own fault or someone else's, and he intervenes to save them, like the Good Samaritan, at great cost, the greatest cost he could ever give. He sent his son, born a tiny child in a manger, born to live a hard life, die a cruel death for us and for our salvation. That means you can find mercy and grace in time of need. Yes, God is a holy judge who does not tolerate sin. The cross shows that too because Jesus bore the penalty for our sin, for our sake. So you can come to God and find him to be a loving merciful Father who cares for you, who delights in you. All you need to do is come to him through his Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your tender mercy, without which we would be so lost. We confess that uh, we, are, we are sinners, that we, like Zechariah, doubted your word, and yet you show mercy to us. We confess that we have rejected and, and disobeyed your will, and yet you show mercy to us in Christ. And we also lament that uh, we live in this broken and fallen world. We suffer in, in so many ways. We, we are sinned against and we also suffer things simply because um, the world is broken and doesn't work the way it's meant to. Our bodies don't always work the way that they're meant to. We thank you that you have compassion uh, on 
these things as well. Help us to trust in your tender mercy, even where we don't see it. And help us to look, above all, to where we do see your tender mercy revealed in the cross of Christ, your Son who you sent to redeem us. Help us to grasp what we can of this glorious truth that the Son of God took on human form, human nature, so that he could pay the great cost for our redemption, to show us mercy that we did not deserve, to show us that mercy is who our God is. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.